Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we're continuing our coverage of VRT. We're going to recap pages 161 through 174 of that 1994 Orb edition. And we're also very excited to announce that thanks to your generosity, we have reached our very first Patreon goal, which is going to mean more podcast episodes. To be precise, it's three more podcast episodes. We're going to be recording three episodes. One, Glenn and I will record. One, Glenn and Valerie will record. And one, Valerie and I will record. All of these will be chosen by patrons based on a poll that we have recently put out. And those will be available on Patreon by the time you're hearing this. Uh, There's some great stuff on the ballot. There's a couple of Gene Wolfe stories, Ursula K. Le Guin, Douglas Adams, loads of Star Trek, some other TV shows, some other sci-fi writers, uh, lots of great stuff. I'm excited to see what listeners want us to do. And of course, with this goal now reached, that means that we have a new goal in sight. And if we reach that goal, we are committed to hosting online video chats, video hangouts with patrons, with listeners. Uh, Every time we finish a Gene Wolfe novel, every time we finish a season of Star Trek Discovery, um, and at some other milestones. If you're interested in that, please uh, head on over to our Patreon page and check it out. But tonight we will be continuing, as Glenn said, our coverage of VRT. This section of the story brings us an account of Marsh's expedition into the back of beyond, which we got a packing list for last episode. And this section also ends with an odd bit of writing about Marsh's defense he plans on making uh, as he's imprisoned. So uh, a lot of a lot of story to go through this evening. This is one of my favorite sections of the story, so I'm excited to get to it. What we're covering today is almost completely from Dr. Marsh's journal entries, and it's about, as you say, Brandon, his expedition into the St. Anne wilderness. And essentially, it's the reverse journey from the one that we saw Sandwalker make in A Story by John V. Marsh. And Wolf is is very clearly inviting us. I mean, I mean, he's really begging us to compare the little details of these two journeys. So we'll point out some of these as they come up, but but not necessarily all of them. We open with an entry dated April six. Dr. Marsh and someone identified only as the boy have begun their expedition to find the sacred cave high up the river Tempest, the place that was called Thunder Always in a story. Dr. Marsh records this entry on their first night camping in the Annie's wilderness. Dr. Marsh has hired the boy from his father, though that's all we're going to learn about this right now. The boy is an excellent servant. He is sparing with the firewood, which Dr. Marsh thinks is a sign of a wise frontiersman. He's also a good cook, uh, a capital cook, he calls him. And I, I couldn't help but be reminded of Wolf's use of the phrase his nibs in Operation Ares. He just loves these Edwardian terms. And the boy is also very clever with ropes, and he, he ties large, complicated-looking knots that hold fast and then fall apart like butter when he wants them to. Dr. Marsh is also keenly aware of the stars and the constellations in a way that he never experienced on Earth because of the, the light pollution. And the boy has been telling him about these constellations and the names that the Annies have for them, names that are, of course, already familiar to us from a story. There's the Shadow Children, Thousand Feelers, the Fish, and the Fighting Lizard. And this last one, of course, contains Soul, our own yellow sun, as we we knew it would. 
There are a few things of note in this first entry, which ends with the three asterisks uh, as Wolf and this, all of the sections of this story in the whole trilogy of novellas, Fifth Head. One is this doubling down on the name The Boy, or the insistence that this guide that Marsh is taking with him is a boy. We're going to learn something that upends that a little bit, that causes us to question Marsh's own engagement with this expedition. Marsh knows almost nothing about what it means to be out in the woods uh, and and to go on a journey like this. You mentioned that uh, he thinks the boy is very sparing with firewood as frontiersmen always are. But Marsh says this as his reading suggests that frontiersmen always are. Marsh is only aware of what this is like from books he's read. He's maybe never gone camping in his whole life. He says even he wouldn't know the constellations of earth in some way he says he doesn't even really look at the night sky of earth at all and that he's probably more familiar now with the annie stars after one night out on the on the open road than he was ever on earth when he says that he's really thinking about light pollution of course we know he did his phd at columbia in new york city look we live in philly we can't see any stars i don't know when the last time i saw stars you know walk really walking down the street of philadelphia are but even if we didn't have that light pollution here the climate of the east coast of north america is such that it is cloudy a lot that we wouldn't also see stars even when we do go camping here you know out in west virginia or up in new hampshire or something like that uh, it's you know only every once in a while that the skies are actually clear enough to see that the fact that he's commenting on that here i think suggests that skies are clear much more frequently on saint anne which is interesting because it is green it is characterized by its vegetation and by its meadow mirrors and he thinks of it as having tropical flora even though it is its temperature is mild but it seems also to be more arid than we would expect yeah it's very weird and we don't even really get a sense of what is feeding the rivers because there's no like snowpack that would trickle down or create mountain streams or anything like that it's just there's a lot of water on the planet the only descriptions we get about what the mountains are like in a story by John V. Marsh is that they're volcanic and they're active volcanoes, which wouldn't mean there's probably like a lot of snow on them. So it's a real question about why this planet is so verdant and where all the water comes from. It could also just be a seasonal thing. There's one other thing we should point out in this section, which is the boy's use of tools, which becomes an odd theme in this story, especially as he believes he's half Annie's. The boy is very clever with ropes. He can use them well. He knows how to handle ropes. But when it comes to lighting, starting the campfire, or as we'll find out, shooting a gun, or even setting up camp, he doesn't really handle the same types of tools that, that people handle. And this is part of this whole larger question of whether the boy is Annie's at all, or whether everything is just learned behavior from his father. His father doesn't handle, handle tools ostensibly because of arthritis, and perhaps the boy has no idea how to do anything with tools because he was never taught by anybody, and his father's very protective, it seems, of his son's interactions with other people, though his father is also a bit of a grifter who begs for more money to cover the loss of the boy's absence while he's guiding Dr. Marsh up this river up tempest 
so those are all the things I really want to point out about this first entry. And as you say, Dr. Marsh doesn't really seem himself to have a whole lot of wilderness experience. And the entry for April 7 opens with an admission of that, that he, he really has no idea what he's doing. And in fact, in the entry before, from the day before, when he's writing down his reflections from the day, he had thought that they were well on their way into this expedition. But in fact, they've still not even really entered the wilderness. They're, they're actually still just trekking through the vast farmland around the city of Frenchman's Landing. And they've not yet ever once even been out of sight of a distant farmhouse. It's just that when they made camp last night, he, he thought that they were. And at this point, on this day, they even passed through a small settlement, which is called Frogtown by the English speakers, uh, because the inhabitants are French. When Dr. Marsh asked the boy why he uses this derogatory term when he himself is of French descent, the boy explains that he is actually half Anise, and so he doesn't feel any sense of French identity. And, and this is where we learn something that you are already alluding to, Brandon, which is that uh, the boy's father has told him that he himself is Anise, and the boy naively believes this lie. And Dr. Marsh also thinks of this boy's father as a beggar. And so at this point, we can conclude that the man in question is the beggar who is pretending to be an Annie's whom we met in our first episode. This is a man named Trenchard. We didn't really spend a whole lot of time with, but we heard about. We get one more detail about the boy in this journal entry. They've forgotten to bring an axe, but the boy is unfazed by the absence of this tool, and instead he uses rocks that they find to pound in tent stakes, and rather than just chop up wood, he just breaks the dead wood that they find over his knee and makes it suitable for building a fire that way. And again, we need to be paying attention to all of these markers about tool use by the boy here. And... Again, at this point, Dr. Marsh praises the boy's ability to quickly and efficiently build a fire, but he also explains that the boy always lets Dr. Marsh have the honor of igniting the fire with a lighter. And, of course, another way of taking this information, though, is to wonder whether the boy is capable of using the lighter, because maybe something isn't quite right with his hands. That is the most important piece of information we get from this section, is this emphasis once again on whether or not the Anis can or cannot use tools, and whether this is an indication of somebody being an Anis, or whether it's just something else entirely. Marsh himself does not, does not know, but it's something he's paying attention to as he's reflecting on his day. And what he sees is the boy's ingenuity, and how this was probably the best choice he could have made for a field guide. Uh, but what we see, having read some of these other stories, is, is Wolf is handing us information that we need to pay attention to. There's one other very important thing that you highlighted, which is that the boy is very serious about the fact that he is a member of the free people, that that is where his loyalties lie. So, you know, Wolf might be making a point here about how identities create our way to of being in the world regardless of the objective reality of them right whether or not he is annie's he is choosing to be annie's in some way and that shapes who he thinks he is shapes what he thinks the world is and what his place in the world is and how he's going to interact with other people it's this question of whether the boy is capable of using his hands with any real dexterity that opens the next entry the one for april 8th the boy, it turns out, is an absolutely 
terrible shot with any of the rifles. And perhaps this is because of a lack of dexterity in his fingers, but again, Dr. Marsh has uh, an alternative explanation. Here, he seems to think that the boy just doesn't really understand the principle of shooting, and he even jokes that the boy seems to think that it's the noise that kills the animals that they're hunting. And, you know, I have to say, I think you had the same experience in basic training, that there are some people who just can't figure out how to shoot a gun with any dexterity at all. Yeah, the way Wolf describes the boy shooting a gun, which is just closing his eyes and aiming, is something you see people do. It's There's kind of a fear of hitting the target on some level. And that's my reading of this section. It's just, just like those people who don't want to see whether or not they've hit the target, whether it's because they're more afraid of succeeding or failing, is exactly what the boy is going through here. But the narrator, Marsh, ties it to this boy's just inability to understand that it is a bullet that kills the animal, not the sound of the gun firing. But I think a third question can be raised, or maybe a second one, which is whether or not the boy is doing this intentionally, or whether it is a further clue to his identity. We're going to see more about the boy's relationship with nature as this expedition continues. And we're going to learn a little bit more about the boy in this entry as well. For, for one, Dr. Marsh calls him the boy only because his father did so. In, in reality, the boy is nearly an adult. He's a, a, a teenager, and he's probably only eight or nine years younger than Dr. Marsh himself. And we also get here the reason that Dr. Marsh hired the boy to be his guide and his camp steward. The boy has spent a lot of time out here in the back of beyond, living in the wilderness with his mother for long periods, though he's never been as far upriver as the sacred cave that they're looking for. We have one last item in this journal entry. There is a cat following the two of them. And it's not any kind of wild Annie's cat. It's just a regular terrestrial house cat, though it does seem to be rather a large one. And it's clearly following them on purpose. It's staying about a quarter mile behind them, and Dr. Marsh presumes that uh, it's following them because it's eating their scraps, the, the crumbs that they leave when they make camp. And Dr. Marsh even took a couple of shots at it this afternoon. And this action, the shooting at the cat, upset the boy so much that Dr. Marsh felt genuinely bad about having done so. And now, as a result, he's told the boy that if he can lure the cat into the camp, he'll let him keep it as a pet. The presence of the cat in this section is interesting because in the last section during the interlude that we didn't really give any attention to during our recap or discussion, we see a black tomcat leap into the officer's windowsill, um, like trying to get into his office. And, and the officer grabs his pistol and the cat hisses and, and runs away. And, I don't know. At this point, I'm wondering if it's the same cat or if it's just the way Wolf is moving us along in the story. We'll have another interlude in this section that involves an animal in a strange way. And one of our discussion questions will be about whether or not that's meaningful, whether it's technique or whether Wolf is doing something here. Right in this section with the cat as well, we have this mention of the word extension, which we have discussed ad nauseum in our last section, <laughs> a story by John V. Marsh. Um, but I wonder if it's here as a clue in a weird way. I love the way Marsh in the wilderness describes these sort of mirages that are the result of the sun and sky and the endless green landscape that he's in. He thinks the cat is much closer than it is. 
and that the bushes in front of him were scrub trees that were far away. And when he shoots the cat, he aims 250 feet, 250 yards further than the cat is in relation to him because his perspective is just so off. And and his use of the word extension here is meant to describe the way everything is just blending together in the landscape. He can't make sense of distance. Now, maybe Marsh needs glasses in some way. Maybe there's something wrong with his eyes, but I just thought it was an interesting note given the odd inclusion of this word and the way it seems to play a part in a story by John V. Marsh. Well, and it certainly clues us into the fact that Marsh is not seen clearly on this planet. Literally, he can't tell the distance of this animal. This is a thing that happens to a person when they're trying to shoot when when you're, you're confused about your frame of reference. But I think we have to assume that Wolf is trying to let us know that perhaps there are other things that Marsh also is not seeing clearly, not interpreting correctly. This leads us back right to the question of the hands and the tool use from the boy, uh, but perhaps a host of other things that he's been observing and thinking about here on St. Anne. Right. And I think that is the most clear in the next section of this journal. Well, this next section is April 10th. Uh, Dr. Marsh has skipped a day because there's been nothing but uninterrupted hiking. They've crossed three small streams, uh, all with interesting names. The boy calls these streams the Yellow Snake, the Girl Running, and the End of Days. But on Dr. Marsh's map, they're labeled 50 Mile Creek, the Johnson River, and the Rougette. And they're all fairly interesting, but this last one I find really fascinating because someone at some point named this river the end of days because of its its redness uh, with rivers turning to blood being uh, an extraordinarily evocative feature of the end of days in the book of revelation at uh, 164 uh, but i think that uh, the relationship between these two pairs of names is very interesting right and these are also streams that feed tempests and so there's Odd color imagery here. So the 50 Mile Creek, we can assume, is Yellow Snake, and that's like a yellow river instead of sulfuric river in some way. Girl Running and Johnson River, there's no real connection to make there. It's just another stream. But End of Days and Rougette, um, we see the difference between the Annies or Free People or Early Settlers version of what these rivers are and the Annies themselves, where they're seeing this river called the End of Days the settlers are calling it just like the little red stream, which is giving it no importance or significance other than that. The way you know that it's that stream is because it's red. It's uh, it's a classification without any further meaning. But the way end of days kind of feeds time and that time is running backwards. There's just all this stuff going on here. And I still don't know what to make of it all. Well, the name Fifty Mile Creek is like is, is is describing how far this stream is from the settlement of Frenchman's Landing. So this is a name that is imposing uh, control on the the wilderness by organizing it, by labeling it, by making its significance only about its reference to civilization. Whereas these other names, like Ye- Yellow Snake and Girl Running, are are more about describing something about the body of water itself. It's a much more naturalistic description, the type of description an explorer would give versus the type of description, the type of name, type of label that uh, a settler would give. It's, it's a beautiful bit of world building here. Wolf is so good at this sort of thing. Well, most of this entry is actually given over to transcribing a conversation between Dr. Marsh and the boy. 
And of course, Dr. Marsh has an audio recording of the conversation, but he likes to make a habit of transcribing the most interesting parts of any of his research conversations. And uh, I think we can all applaud his tenacity in backing up his, his data. Now, the first thing to note about this conversation is that the boy is not labeled the boy here. Rather, he is called by his initials, and they are, as we had to expect, VRT, the name of this story. Dr. Marsh asks VRT if he and his mother ever saw any people when they wandered out here in the back of beyond. And VRT explains that, yeah, they saw a great many people almost every day. Many animals and birds, trees that were alive, just as the two of them have seen already, even though they are not yet properly in the back of beyond, where one sees gods come floating down the river on logs, and trees gone traveling, the gods with large and small heads, and blossoms of the water hydrangea in their hair. Uh, I think there's a lot that is absolutely fascinating here, Uh, but there are a few more things to note. VRT describes elkmen, uh, basically a a type of elk centaur, and similarly configured cow women. He also talks about the shadow children who come to steal in the evening, riding up in the bubbles and the foam from the springs. And he tells us that at these times when he was a small boy, his mother would hide him behind her hair to keep him safe from the shadow children. But later, when he was older, he would shout at the shadow children and he would make them run at him. And they would all run at him, biting. But there were never as many of them as they think, because some are only in the minds of the others. And when it came time to really fight, they would fade back into each other and become one. And Dr. Marsh is intrigued by this. And I don't know, how can your heart not be beating out of your chest at this story? after we've read the second novella, and he has some follow-up questions. He wants to know what VRT has seen now on this trip. And VRT claims that he's seen birds and animals and trees living, and he has also seen some shadow children. And at this last comment, Dr. Marsh assumes that he's talking about the constellation, the shadow children, but he never asks VRT to clarify And VRT never actually agrees or disagrees with his assumption here. And it's not really clear to me that Dr. Marsh is actually all that good at interviewing people or textual criticism of any sort. And uh, that might be why he's out here doing fieldwork and not taking up a tenure track post uh, as soon as he's finished his PhD. Well, at this point, their conversation turns to what VRT wants to do for a profession when he's an adult. And when Dr. Marsh asks him this question, he just starts to cry. He he weeps. And, of course, Dr. Marsh has an interpretation about this. To his perspective, to his mind, VRT has very few prospects. He's poor, and he has only half of a formal education. But still, he thinks, VRT is clever, and he's quite smart. Uh, He's even read some of Dr. Marsh's anthropology texts that he has with him on this expedition, And VRT seems to understand them even better than the average undergrad at Columbia. Now, there are two more things that we should note before we leave this entry. When VRT started crying, Dr. Marsh walked away from the camp because, you know, it's very awkward to just sit around and read a book or make s'mores or something next to a person who is actively weeping. So he takes a little walk, and in the brush, he encounters some huge, luminous worms that are the color of a dead man's lips. A fantastic simile. It's an awesome description. 
But it also perhaps has something to do with the worms that we saw in A Story by John V. Marsh. And the other thing to point out is that VRT has with him his school notebook. And presumably, this is the same notebook that is now in the officer's possession on San Croix, along with this very journal. Again, we see the emphasis here of VRT's terrible handwriting, which was shown to us or described to us in the first episode, that all of these belongings are together for some criminal case against John Marsh that we just don't know what's going to happen. There's intrigue in the background, but it's almost like in, in Fifth Head, where number five says, I had not yet thought of killing my father, and nothing in the story seems to be building up to that killing. Similarly, we know someone is in prison for some reason, but nothing in the story indicates why, the when, the how, or the where, just that that is an outcome that may be unrelated to all the other information we're getting. I love how Wolf does that because he does put all the information in the story that you need to cobble together the plot eventually. Uh, It's just one of the joys of reading him. In this section, we also see the first of many instances of weeping, tears, sadness being represented from the discharge of the, the eyes. And Wolf is doing something here with VRT. Uh, The boy is very sensitive, and it's not clear why he's weeping. He seems to get very quiet, though, after John V. Marsh asks if the boy will tell him if he sees anything extraordinary. VRT just nods at this point. And it's almost as though all the things that VRT loves about the world that are extraordinary are being missed entirely by John Marsh. And it could be that VRT is just weeping for the fact that John Marsh cannot see the beauty in the world around him. He's too focused on getting answers about, you know, the Annie's people or something like that. I I just think it's a beautiful touch in this transcription that goes to show the value of Wolf's technique of putting us in the position of the officer reviewing these documents. So we have to come up with multiple possible interpretations as we're getting these kind of contemporaneous memos of what is happening on this expedition. All right. We come now to the entry for April 11th, and it's the longest entry that we've had so far. We're going to be on this one for a little while. Our two trekkers are awoken about an hour before dawn by a commotion among their mules. And when they investigate, they don't see anything, but they do hear a big animal and they smell something like the stink of rotten meat. Uh, this is certainly a ghoul bear or the inspiration for the invention of the ghoul bear in A Story by John V. Marsh. It takes them some time to get the mules gathered and calmed. And when they're ready, Dr. Marsh wants to backtrack to see if they can find some sign of uh, a large predatory animal, of whatever it is that disturbed the mules. They don't find what they're looking for. They just find the cat that's been following them and some tracks of a firefox. And we've seen this name Firefox before in a story. And Dr. Marsh here compares VRT's description of what a Firefox looks like with the field guide to the animals of St. Anne, which is this book that he is carrying with him. And this is another of these books that I hope that Wolf actually wrote and that he will publish someday. I would love to just thumb through this book. I don't know, something like a, a D&D monster manual or something. Well, when they get back on track, Dr. Marsh shoots a large animal that is uh, similar to an Asian water buffalo. When he reaches the downed animal, he realizes that it had still been alive for much of the time that it it took him to, to walk the distance. 
And he writes that there seemed to have been a heavy flow of lacrimal fluid that left broad, wet streaks in the dust beneath each eye. All of which is a dispassionate way to say that the animal cried in pain while it died. But Marsh won't say that plainly, even here in his journal. Right. He has to use this technical language that distances him from the possibility of the animal being a creature worthy of experiencing misery or sadness or something like that, a creature worthy of his own compassion as a hunter. Marsh becomes something of a vicious hunter as this story continues. And it's great to see that transformation. And it's something I want us to keep an eye on because we'll have a question about it in the discussion. A note on these animals is that the fennec, which is what Marsh compares the firefox to is a creature that's kind of native to the Saharan desert. And then we have the Asian water buffalo, as you mentioned, that's from uh, Asian earth. And all of this kind of nature reserve reminds me of what Wolf was going for in the early parts of Operation Ares, where all of the animals were shipped to North America and were running loose. And that's kind of what's going on here in the back of beyond. Yeah, absolutely. This description of the thing that I'm surmising is, uh, you know, related to the ghoul bear in some way. Even when we, in fact, encountered that ghoul bear at the time, that seemed very much to me to be like these weird hyena baboon creatures from Operation Ares. This is certainly an image or an idea of something that Wolf has in his mind and wants to, to get into everything that he's writing here. Like he's, I don't know, exploring different angles to approach it from or trying to perfect it. Of course, we all know that we're going to see this sort of thing in the Book of the New Sun and and other places as we carry on with our journey. Well, there's another interesting and and possibly important detail that we get here about the animal's eyes, not just that it's it's crying, but that they are double-pupiled. This is not a common feature on St. Anne, and, and Dr. Marsh surmises that it must be an adaptation that's been induced by the creature's largely aquatic habits, uh, similar to certain fish on Earth. About an hour after this brief hunting detour, they reach the bank of the Tempest, which looks very different up here than it did at the mouth when VRT's father had shown him the Annie's tree temple. At the mouth, it was brackish and yellow and nearly a mile wide. But here, it is clear and fast-flowing. In fact, it's dangerously fast-flowing. And the landscape also has changed. And in fact, the the fennec, I think, is a a great indication of exactly this. The meadowmeres are behind them now, and they find themselves among rolling hills, covered with emerald grass and dotted with trees and thickets. There's also a note here about Dr. Marsh's original plan to take a boat up the river, which he now realizes would have been completely impossible, uh, given how quickly it's flowing, and uh, he surmises that there are rapids and waterfalls ahead. He could, however, have done it with a hovercraft. But, he writes, with St. Anne's small industrial capacity, there are probably only about two dozen hovercrafts on the whole planet, and these are the sacred prerogative of the military. I think Wolf is doing a great job here, again, of world building. We know that there has been a war on this planet, but whether it was something closer to a civil war with primitive weapons or more like a futuristic war with upgraded military technology, we don't really know. And here we see that there are hovercrafts that probably part of exploring a new planet requires hovercrafts. You know, this is another feature of a, a Wolf story called the Feathered Tigers, which is all of this kind of computerized 
uh, aircraft and hovercraft around a planet that is the only way people really get around because it's a lot to explore a planet without technology. I just think that's a great detail Wolf puts in here. As Marsh examines this water buffalo, I'm just going to return here real quick. Uh, One thing I want to point out is that the boy is nearly crying. And the fact that Marsh is paying attention to the animal's eyes causes him to look at the boy's eyes. And he sees that the boy's eyes are startlingly green. And this is another crucial detail that comes up in a story, which is that green is the color of eyes. It's the color of Annie's eyes. And once again, Wolf is teasing us, the reader who have been with him for for this whole journey, of the potential for all of a story to just be something John Marsh writes as a result of this little expedition. He just puts all these things together and comes up with a a fantasy, in a sense. It's brilliant. could also be very true as well. And I think the next bit of this journal entry calls us to think about different sections of a story by John V. Marsh even more as we see what is potentially an oasis. Right. When they get uh, about a mile upstream, VRT becomes very excited because they've finally arrived at a location that is really special to him because he used to visit it with his mother when he was younger. The place is a slight bend in the river that has a very few large overhanging trees and an oddly shaped stone. VRT and his mother seem to have stayed here a lot. Uh, They would use the trees as shelter from sun and rain and snow And they would eat the mussels and the snails and the fish that lived in the deep pools of water at the foot of the stone. And we can see here a a connection, a parallel with the sacred tree oasis that we encounter in a story, as you point out, Brandon. And Dr. Marsh asks VRT to give him a few minutes by himself here so that he can appreciate the beauty of this wonderful place, which is something he says perhaps kind of sarcastically. Uh, But when he is actually alone, he writes that he feels more utterly alone than it is ever given most of us born on earth to be, with only the wind and the sun and the sighing of the great trees that trailed their roots in the murmuring waters before me. This is an absolutely gorgeous description. We can also see how this experience will go on to become an important part of a story. Perhaps, anyway. Marsh gives some time in his journal over to describing the way the boy talks about his experience being outdoors and being in the wilderness and and finding a spot like this. And I think one of the reasons why you think Marsh is being cynical is because Marsh is dismissive of the way the boy is talking about these things. It just wants him to move along. Marsh writes this about listening to the boy talk. He says, after listening to him talk in this way, uh, which is about the importance and the beauty of such a place that they had just come across, for a few minutes, I realized that he looks upon the outdoors at least on certain special areas or parts of it, such as this, in the way that most people are accustomed to looking at buildings or rooms, which is an odd idea. And this is the idea of this boy recognizing nature's provision for human survival or for uh, for a species survival, how it's works together and how human ingenuity can allow you to turn this sort of spot with an oddly shaped stone and maybe some overgrown interlocking tree boughs into a shelter for the winter that has food and fresh water and everything you might need. And Marsh still doesn't get it. He still doesn't get it. And instead, as he's sitting alone, 
he's concerned about the fact that he won't be able to share his trophy his hunting trophy with anybody he's thinking about the fact that field work is really where it's at and that the great professors of anthropology only have that job so that they can go to the fields and justify their their field excursions even as he dismisses the type of work many of them are doing on earth he he says you know he used to think that they were just working in this old like played out melanesia again like investigating these old tribes in islands in the pacific and so it's just this attitude of marshes that we just find to be kind of grimy i think that may be reflected in the character we meet in fifth out of cerberus wolf writes this bit as if Marsh is having an epiphany, right? When he realizes for the first time that fieldwork is really what anthropology is about, that that being able to take a semester or a whole academic year off to have a, what's called a sabbatical, to go do fieldwork is every anthropologist's dream that having to be on campus all year, having to teach courses and go to department meetings, having to edit academic journals and revise your monographs is the price that they are all paying in order to go spend a year out in the field. The fact that Dr. Marsh has made it all the way through his PhD program, has earned his PhD without having realized that, without having developed his own love for doing the actual scholarship, the actual research of his discipline, I think suggests something about his worldview, uh, something almost kind of selfish about himself. Well, we've got one more thing that we need to talk about here in this journal entry. While he is here alone at this oasis, the cat who has been following them comes up and it's meowing. And Dr. Marsh chases it away by throwing rocks at it. So he has not grown in any amount of empathy from making the boy upset when he was shooting the cat, from seeing that uh, shooting this water buffalo uh, made it cry as it as it died. He's developed no empathy from these experiences. I mean, the boy being upset about the caribou and the way Marsh handles it, which is to say like, well, we're only going to take the choicest bit of meat. We can leave the rest behind is a kind of a disgusting attitude for somebody who only uses the absolute least amount of camp wood necessary uh, to build a fire or you know, this this would just be seen as a total sacrilege to leave this rotting corpse in the jungle and only take a little bit of meat with them because raw meat spoils. You can't do anything with raw meat on an expedition, you know, and the, and the boy tries to make the best of it by hanging it up to dry. But I think it, it, the way this journal entry ends is that he shoots, Marsh shoots two more deer while catching up to the boy, which is to say, what is he going to do with any of the corpses that he leaves behind? He's just killing for fun at this point, or sport. Uh, there, there doesn't seem to be any particular need to be doing it. I think this is a very interesting part of Marsh's character, and I'm looking forward to digging into this in, in the discussion episode. Well, at this point, we leave Dr. Marsh's journal behind, and we come to the only intrusion of the frame narrative that we're going to get in this episode— a bird has blundered into the room where the officer is reading these documents and is now perching silent and bewildered on a picture frame. 
The officer tries to get it to go away, but every time he gets it to fly off, the bird just comes right back to that picture frame. And all of this is just to explain why we're going to pick up with a different text in the next section. But Wolf's use here of the exact plot of Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven really amused me. I, I laughed out loud while I was reading this, just envisioning this scene. Not to mention the presence of a black cat, which is another Poe story. And I wonder if Wolf is just picking Poe animals and tossing them into this story is like the mode, the way to get us along. I'll have a question about that in our discussion episode, but you know, maybe we won't have too much to say about it then. Yeah, you know what? Edgar Allan Poe's story, The Gold Bug, is 100% about a man who scares himself half to death because he is having an issue with perspective and doesn't recognize that this bug is right in front of him and not miles away. Same thing Dr. Marsh does here. (laughs) Right, yeah. There's a lot of Poe, I think, then in VRT. Yeah, we need to be on the lookout for this as we go on. Uh, That's fantastic. Well, the next document that the officer looks at is a clerical transcription of Dr. Marsh's prison diary. It's uh, arranged merely as a handful of loose pages. So uh, we're going to begin in media res. The opening line is, I should have an attorney. That much is clear. Dr. Marsh will be assigned one by the court, of course, but he feels certain that the university will advance him the funds for a private attorney. And there's an interesting bit here in which Marsh writes that he's already asked his court-appointed attorney to contact the university, but then he corrects that to, I will ask him. So something might be amiss with Dr. Marsh's sense of time or reality here in prison. The rest of this part of the diary is a hypothetical speech that Dr. Marsh imagines himself making before a judge, uh, seemingly acting as his own attorney. And This is something that he is doing while he's here in jail as an exercise to prepare himself for his trial. Yeah, and I should say that uh, we'll be going through this final speech in in some detail in our discussion episode because there's just so much to it. The first thing he does is question the concept of guilt, and he wonders whether the concept of guilt is broadly valid, uh, which I take to mean universally applicable. He considers several classes of people who cannot be punished by reason of guilt under any circumstances. And these classes include children, the weak of intellect, the very rich, the disturbed of mind, animals, the near relations of persons in high positions, and of course, the persons in high positions themselves. This is uh, a comedic blend here of legal theory with the social practicalities of how justice actually functions. But what Marsh does next is to put forth an argument that he belongs to two of these classes. He is a child, and he is an animal. And to prove this, he quibbles about the definition of child— Being a child is not merely a matter of age, because nothing could be more absurd than to pose someone innocent because he had committed a crime on Tuesday, but guilty if he had committed it the very next day because he'd had a birthday or something. Instead, he argues that being a child is about internal, subjective evidence, and in his case, he is a child because he owns no real estate, he's never participated in or witnessed a legal contract, He's never been called to give evidence in a court of law. He's never married, reproduced, or adopted a child. And he's never had a job. 
And and here at this statement that he's never had a job, he has to quibble further about whether his income from Columbia as a grad student was a salary or a stipend. And as for being an animal, the fact of his imprisonment demonstrates that he is not a human being, but a mere animal. Humans roam free and sleep in beds, and they bathe. It is animals who are confined in kennels and who sleep on the floor and who have to clean themselves by licking. And since this is how he's living now, clearly he's an animal and not a person. And of course, we have to be reminded here of the epigram from Carl Chopik. And this thought is going to bring us to the end of our recap tonight. And this adds to our sense that he is kind of arrogant and nearsighted in some way or short-sighted with regard to himself is that he says that he believes himself to belong to all the classes he has designated above. But the two most compelling arguments he can make is that he is both a child and an animal. But in his mind, he believes he's weak of intellect, very rich, disturbed of mind, the near relations of persons in high positions, or the person themselves. That there's something, there's something wrong with his mind, I think, at this point in this story that's very clear, especially as you brought up his, his odd relationship with time. And I wonder if the fact that he thinks himself a child has anything to do with his subjective encounter with the young man he calls a boy. These are questions that I'll be looking at as we continue our coverage of VRT. But that's going to do it for this episode. Again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of this section of the story. It was largely an expedition journal, but I'd just love to hear our readers' responses to what they think about Marsh, what they think about VRT, and how the expedition is actually really going. I also want to take a moment to thank all of our generous supporters for getting us to our first Patreon goal. If you enjoy our podcast and the content we provide, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter as well. Like Len said in the beginning of this episode, we'll be releasing three Patreon-only bonus episodes in the near future. Next time, we'll be back with a discussion of this section of VRT. And until then, we greet you and say farewell.